We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. In our ongoing study of the book of Leviticus, we arrive today at chapters 11 through 15. And writing about these chapters, Old Testament scholar Jeffrey Harper says, with Leviticus 11 through 15, we also come to what is for many Christian people the strangest and least familiar portion of the book. The regulations contained here seem pedantic to the extreme and so far removed from normal life that it is hard to find reason to even read these chapters, let alone preach or teach them. But remember, as he would point out as well, I'm sure, what the Apostle Paul said about the scriptures, which he's referring to the Old Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, all scripture includes Leviticus 11 through 15, just to be clear. So we can come to these chapters with an expectation that there is a word from the Lord for his people, his church, in in this text. Uh, This section deals with the issue of ritual purity. And while ritual purity is something that was set aside by Jesus during his ministry, in Mark chapter 7, you might remember, Jesus declared all foods clean. In Romans 14, Paul says that he is persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. So these are things that have been set aside by the Lord Jesus. Nonetheless, ritual purity points to the moral purity which the people of God were to have in their lives, which remains an ever-relevant topic to us. We are a people who worship a holy God. A God who, among other things, calls us to be pure in heart, to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts in James 4, to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable in 2 Timothy 2, to be holy as he is holy, which comes out of this broad section in Leviticus 11 and is quoted again by Peter in 1 Peter 1, to be perfect as he is perfect. Remember that at the end of Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This call remains ever-present in our lives today. And it's not an easy calling to live into. I remember about 12 years ago, uh, listening to a talk given by Sam Wells, who at the time was the dean of the, the, the chapel at Duke University. And he, he used this image of us being like flypaper. We were walking around in a world that's just saturated with impurity. And all of that impurity and filth is, can, is just sticking to us all week long. And when we come into the worship of God's people, one of the beauties of confessing our sins is actually like the flypaper just gets moved. You know, like the plastic that covers a, a camera on a race car just kind of gets slid over after it gets filled with bugs. Like it just gets moved over to a clean version of it. And it's so challenging And we'll confess our sins, by the way, later in this service together before the Lord. 
it is so challenging to walk with clean hands and pure hearts in our world. A world in which we are routinely, routinely bombarded, certainly in the virtual world, through our screens. And we spend so much of our lives on screens now, don't we? Especially in the younger generation. And we are bombarded with lust and greed and envy and sloth and all manner of impurity. There are all kinds of forbidden fruit in the virtual world and in the real world vying for our attention, our devotion, our investment. And yet we're called to walk in purity in the Lord Jesus. My aim in, in addressing these chapters this morning, Leviticus 11 through 15, is to prompt us as the people of God to grow in purity in response to the grace of God. So to address this section of Leviticus, and we're only spending one week, you'll be relieved to find out, in this section, uh, we are going to focus in on chapter 12, which we had read earlier, that on the issue of the ritual impurity of a woman resulting from childbirth. Before we do that, I want to set this in context, this section in context. It naturally flows from God's clarification to Aaron the high priest in chapter 10 uh, that in the wake of his son's deaths by fire for wrongly approaching the Lord, that the priests are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, or the impure and the pure. The Hebrew could be translated either way. I'll use pure and impure throughout most of this time this morning. Having clarified this role of the high priest and his sons, then God reveals his instructions for how to make these distinctions in ordinary life. That's this section. So chapter 11 is about pure and impure creatures, animals, and what we can and can't eat. Chapter 12, as we've read, is about laws deal dealing with the richly defiling bodily fluids lost due to childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14 deal with various skin diseases and garment or house infections. And then chapter 15 are laws dealing with ritually defiling bodily fluids. Not our everyday topics in the church, but these are the laws that were given to the people of God so that they might make distinctions between these different states. Now let's understand the regulations are about making distinctions and clarifying ritual states. So bear with me on learning. We've got to do a little lifting to understand what's going on in Leviticus 12. There were three basic ritual states in Israel, holy, pure, and impure, or clean and unclean. The higher the ritual state, the closer that one could get to the presence of the Holy Lord of glory. So who is the most holy? It is the high priest, Aaron, who's been consecrated and set apart. He can enter the holy place every day. He can enter the holy of holies into the very presence of God behind the veil one time a year. And in a few weeks when we come back to Leviticus, we'll look at that in Leviticus 16. The lower, on the other hand, the lower the ritual state, the further away one needed to stay from the Lord. Thus, an impure, an impure Israelite was forbidden from coming to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices and sometimes even had to be removed from the camp so that their impurity wasn't spread to others in the community. The premise here is that holiness, that is God's holy presence in their midst, and impurity do not mix without severe consequences, even at times death. 
So the regulations of chapters 11 through 15, as confusing as they are to us, are meant to help Israel diagnose ritual impurity and to take the right measures to address this impurity as a means of protecting Israel from the holy presence of God that was dangerous to them as a sinful and impure people. So whenever you're reading this devotionally, which I'm sure happens every month, I want you to remember that everything that's given here is given as, an, as a means of the grace of God. Remember our theme in this series is God with us. God longs to dwell with his people. God longs for us to be present to his presence. And God intends to give his people a way for them to be able to safely be in his presence. So these regulations are a gift of divine grace to God's people to deal with ritual impurity that keeps them from him still giving orientation. We need to make a distinction between ritual states and moral states. To be ritually impure was not necessarily to be morally impure. As we'll see in chapter 12, childbirth is a good and God-designed process for the multiplication of image bearers. In those days, though, with those sets of standards around ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness, childbirth rendered a woman ritually impure for a time. She actually required atonement, we read in verse 7 of chapter 12, according to these ancient standards. But, and this is significant, she did not require forgiveness. You don't find that word in Leviticus 12. This was not a matter of sin. It was not a moral issue. That said, though, ritual purity still put one in a position, whether involuntarily attained, as it was in childbirth, or voluntarily attained, perhaps by eating unclean food, ritual impur impurity still put one, put one in a position of peril before the Holy Lord of glory, because his holiness consumes impurity. And so, of course, God provides these regulations to deal with that. One of the great challenges of the book of Leviticus is that we're not given in the book the rationale behind the regulations. They're just given, the regulations are given. Many theories exist about the rationale, but none can be proved. It's possible even that Israel didn't understand the rationale, that they would have just said, well, that's just the way things are. There are things like that even in our culture today. Further, there may not have been a consistent rationale for various kinds of ritual impurity. There may have been different rationales in each area. So we can't be certain about uh, the rationale behind these regulations. But what is clear, if the rationale is not, is that ritual impurity was not to be taken lightly because the Holy Lord of glory dwelled, dwelt in their midst. So that's our general orientation. Let's move next to the specific case of Leviticus 12. <clears throat> After a brief introduction in verse 1, and I do encourage you to look at the text with me, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying... So this is clearly now divine discourse, divine revelation. That's the primary mode of communication in the book of Leviticus. So God is speaking through Moses. And then we get from verse 2b to 4, regulations in relation to the birth of a male child. And then regulations in relation to the birth of a female child in verse 5. And then a set of final purification procedures in verses 6 through 8 that are the same whether the child born was a boy or a girl. So let's get down, let's establish some of the details and then consider some of the questions that this text I'm sure has already raised in your mind. To be extra clear, we're not asserting that these things are the case now. As I've already mentioned, Jesus puts an end to ritual purity 
in his ministry. He sets it aside in the new covenant. But these were studying these regulations as they would have impacted God's relationship to Israel in the old covenant so that we might understand something more about the nature of God. And we will as a holy God as we look at them. So the woman is rendered ritually impure after childbirth due to the initial and ongoing blood loss that occurs because of giving birth. This is related to the fact that the woman is also rendered impure or unclean. If you look at verse 2, at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. So at the time of her monthly period, she is also rendered unclean. And these regulations are covered in the regulations about bodily discharges in chapter 15. I realize we don't normally talk about these topics in church. The woman goes through three stages, a three-stage process of purification. There is an initial stage of purification lasting seven or 14 days, a, second, a secondary stage of purification that lasts 33 or 66 days, and then at the end of that second stage, a third act of purification in the ascension offering and the purification offering, a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove that are brought to the priest as a final act of purification from the ritual impurity of childbirth. And then we get this wonderful provision in verse 8. This so reveals the heart of God. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for an ascension offering, the other for a purification offering. So God offers accommodation here for a poor woman to bring before him a different kind of sacrifice for her purification. And actually, Leviticus 12, 8 is quoted in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2. Because it was this, the two birds, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, brought before the priests for her own purification, ritual cleansing, after the birth of our Lord. It's kind of neat to see that connection. I know, okay, this is a lot. The, the woman in her ritual impurity, verse 4, cannot touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Again, all of these regulations are pointing to the fact that holy, the holy God and ritual impurity cannot mix. And it is to protect the Israelites who are impure and to protect God's dwelling place from being defiled. Again, we're not given the rationale for why childbirth was defiling and making the woman ritually impure. But the clear implication is that she's impure because of the blood associated with childbirth. A, a literal rendering of verse 4a uh, is, then for 33 days she must continue in the bloods of her purification. Or that would be in the blood that requires purification. There are of course many theories that have been put forward about why this renders the woman impure. One is that this blood loss represents a loss of life because life is in the blood, Leviticus 17, and so the loss of this kind of bodily fluid in childbirth would render the woman closer to the sphere of death than under normal conditions. And one of the theories behind impure and purer laws within Israel was that the, the more impure, impurity was closer to the realm of death and purity was closer to holiness in the realm of life. This doesn't explain everything though because obviously childbirth is a celebration of life at one level. 
another um, theory is that the blood, the loss of blood represents a lack of wholeness or completeness, which would render her Im richly impure because purity was connected to wholeness or completeness. And because of this substantial loss from her body, there is a lack of wholeness. And so she is impure. Again, we can't be sure. One explanation that I find intriguing is by the biblical scholar Alistair Roberts. When he links childbirth, menstruation, and even a man's omission, as addressed in, in Leviticus 15, these bodily omissions slash discharges from male and female genitalia connect to the life-creating potential of man and woman around menstruation, childbirth, and sexual intercourse to the reproduction of the flesh. And yet, after the fall, the flesh is tainted by sin under the curse. And the proximity of these discharges and processes to life-giving reproduction of the sinful flesh, then, might render the experience of these discharges as rendering one ritually impure. Again, we can't be certain, and if you didn't follow all of that, that's okay. But it is an interesting theory that because of the flesh tainted by sin, the life-giving powers of man and woman represented in these parts and processes would then be associated with ritual impurity. What we can be certain about is that God graciously provides a pathway back to ritual purity for the woman in chapter 12. Now let's address some of the questions. Because I know most of you probably are asking this question, is this text sexist or misogynistic? Really, doesn't a woman get dissed in this text in two particular ways? First, we have the fact that the woman in the natural order of very good things, both in childbirth and menstruation, is, is regularly rendered ritually impure and thus excluded from God's life-giving presence. Second, some of you picked up on verse 5, the time of impurity for a birth of a female child is double that of the time of impurity for the birth of a male child, from 7 to 14 in the initial stage and from 33 to 66 in the second stage. Surely that is discriminating against women. And when we read this text through our modern cultural assumptions and lens about the ancient world, we can't help but think this way. It's an understandable question. But there are reasons to push back against this reading. And here they are. First, whatever we are to say about this, it must square with the fact that in the biblical witness, there is an emphatic embrace of women as equal image bearers of God. So emphatic that God ensures that this equality of women and men would be encoded in the very first chapter of the Torah, in the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, where we read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. If God and his people were to be sexist, then we would never expect God to set this encoded in his people right at the beginning of the law. Furthermore, because it's right at the beginning of God's instruction to his people, this would be a reminder to Israelite men in the midst of a patriarchal ancient world that did often demean women that it would not be this way among God's people. This would not be the way that women would be treated in the people of God. God and his people, as always, would be different. Women were of equal worth as image bearers in the sight of God and would be treated as such among his people. So whatever we say about this text, we need to say it in light of that clear teaching 
in Genesis chapter 1. Second, we can actually read the ritual impurity of the woman in childbirth as expressing care and compassion and concern for the woman. A woman's postpartum ritual impurity actually gave her a socially acceptable reason for stepping out of the normal patterns and requirements of both domestic life and sacred life. Then after the initial stage of impurity, seven or 14 days, she would re-enter domestic life, no longer having contagious impurity. Then after the 33 or 66 days, she would be able to re-enter sacred, the sacred realm and gain access to that again. But in the meantime, she would not have to attend the mandatory feasts and festivals that would have been required for Israelites to go. And there would have been a socially understood and acceptable reason for her not doing so. At least in that initial phase, she wouldn't have to deal with the standard domestic realities of life either. In a time before modern pain medicine and comforts, one can argue that this freedom to rest and recuperate is an expression of compassion and care for the woman herself. It is, if you will, a kind of divinely imprinted maternity leave given in ancient Israel that was gracious for the mother. Third, the certainty does elude us as to why the time of ritual impurity was doubled for the birth of a female child. There is no inherent reason that we need to read this as a negative comment about the female sex. I, I recently heard a story about a woman who was reading the book of Leviticus in the course of her family devotions with her three children. I, I say that's a brave woman. Um, she had a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And they read through the book of Leviticus. And then at the end of reading the book, they decided to come up with 20 observations about the book of Leviticus that would be helpful. And her kids, one of the observations that they made was based on Leviticus 12. In the innocence of youth, and unspoiled by some of the cultural assumptions that adults bring to these kinds of texts, they looked at chapter 12 and said this, wow, God must really love little girls. He gives them extra time with their mommies. <laughs> I mean, it's not the right reading of the text, <laughs> but it is nonetheless an illustration of the fact that we often bring a, a lens as adults in the Western world to texts like this that predetermine a reading that shouldn't be found there. Another reason why we shouldn't find that here is also the ancients. There's a good example of Rabbi Ishmael in the first or second century reading and commenting on Leviticus 12 pointed in no way to an inferior position of the female sex in his interpretation of this text, but you might have expected him to do so as a pre-modern. But he didn't. Instead, he pointed to the idea common among the ancients that the gestation period for males was shorter than that for females. And that may have been the reason for a longer period of impurity. A third thing to say about this is there is a theory that the difference between the periods of impurity or stages of impurity, lengths of impurity, is actually related to what we find in verse 3. So look back at the text. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Well, the newborn infant and the mother are bound together as a pair, and circumcision in the male infant is a cutting off of the flesh at the site where flesh is symbolically focused because of the reproductive power. If the connection between the flesh and the ritual impurity is correct that I suggested earlier, then this cutting off of the flesh may lessen, perhaps cut in half, 
the time of impurity for the mother because of male childbirth, because it deals with that impurity in a different kind of way, by an act of cutting off the flesh. Again, that is not stated fact, but it's another way of thinking about this difference in the periods. So after the waiting period, whether it was 80 days or 40 days, the woman then brings a sacrifice to present to the priest at the temple. Let it be known, by the way, that women brought sacrifices in ancient Israel, as did men. Just want to say that in light of the discussion we've just had. That is elevating and beautiful, actually, to think about. The woman would bring a sacrifice, an ascension offering. The purification offering would make atonement. It would bring cleansing from any leftover ritual impurity that existed at the end of her waiting period from the flow of blood. And the ascension offering would be the means of offering praise to God for the protection he gave her in childbirth and for his ongoing care and protection and provision for her and her family and for the nation of Israel. And it would be also a means of further consecration and her impurity would be dealt with and over. So let's transition then having looked at the general context and then the specific case of Leviticus 12 to some questions about our lives today and how we might make something of these laws around ritual purity. Jay Sklar, an Old Testament scholar, observes three conclusions around this chapter that I think are helpful. The first is that these regulations concerning ritual purity were a reminder to Israel and to the nations around Israel that the God who dwelled, it dwelt in their presence is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And as they went to great lengths to deal with the concept and realities of, of the states of ritual purity or impurity in a divinely ordained way, this would signify to them in their daily life, in dealing with bodily fluids and natural processes, it would signify to them again and again, God is holy. The God who dwells among you is holy. This is something we so easily forget in our modern world, that God is holy. And so one thing that we can take as Christians from this text is let's remember that God at the heart of our faith is a holy God. The second thing that, that these regulations could show us is that not only is God holy, but God longs for his people to be holy, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be different from the world around them. And as they gave painstaking attention to the details of ritual purity in their life together, they were then set apart from the nations around them as a distinct people, holy and other than the world in which they found themselves. And finally though, and certainly most relevant to us, these regulations in the ritual realm would have served as a constant reminder to the people of God that the holy Lord of glory who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and had taken up residence in their very midst in the tabernacle longed for his people to be pure in the moral realm just as he did in the ritual realm in every aspect of their lives. And it's this dimension that has enduring value for us in the church today, because though Christ has set aside ritual purity as a state and as a relevant category for his disciples, he nonetheless calls us, as we've already seen in this message, radically to a deep kind of moral purity to which these regulations pointed. We are to be holy as our God is holy, to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And here's where this then can lead us as followers of Jesus today, because I realize some of you might be sitting here going, I am anything but pure. 
That flypaper analogy at the beginning, I'm filled with muck. What hope could there be for someone like me who's so tempted, so fallen, has made such choices in my life, maybe even this last week, that reflect nothing of the holiness of God but just the sinfulness of my own heart or the brokenness of my world that I've been caught up in even though I couldn't help it and I'm trying my best. The the first reaction to this that I want to suggest for all of us is to be overwhelmed and to give thanks for the provision of God to make us clean, to purify us. After listing a number of moral impurities, of lifestyles of sin that were to ban one from inheriting the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul then writes this in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've talked in this series already that there is no greater cleansing agent in the world than the blood of Jesus, which God has provided for his people as a sacrifice being poured out at the cross such that it would be a cleansing agent for that muck and mire in the inside of our lives and in and around our world. Here's how Revelation 7 describes this. John, in his vision, says about the redeemed that are gathered around the throne of God, giving worship and praise to him. He says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you're sitting here this morning and feeling condemned because of your lack of purity, because of choices that you've made in your life, then what we all, and that should be all of us, what we all need to know again as we come to these kinds of texts is the Lord has made a way. A wonderful, pure, amazing way. The purifying blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin belongs to us. It is a gift to us and it is the means by which we can actually come into genuine life. However you walked in today, that is the offer. It was different for the woman after childbirth around ritual states, but still the Lord offered a way for her to become into purity. Today, God offers us a way to walk into the fullness of purity through the blood of his son. Do you know that cleansing? We receive it as we repent of our sins, as we let go of our idols, as we let go of running life on our own terms, and as we embrace God's provision in Jesus. It's in that embrace that the cleansing work of the blood of Christ takes place in our hearts, sprinkles clean our consciences, as the author of Hebrews says, and sets us on new footing that we could walk in a new direction. So the first thing that just to respond to this is to say, do you know the provision of God for you that sets you free from condemnation? And then the second one. Well, I want to mention 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the second point. Having received the provision of God to purify our hearts and our lives, to wash us, the New Testament then comes back again and again and again and exhorts us to pursue that kind of purity in a day-to-day fashion in our lives. Cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Or as we read in 1 Peter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all gossip or all slander. 
as we receive the gift, as we bask in the glory of the grace of God to bring purity to our lives that we could not bring on our own terms, as we, as we rejoice in all that God has given to us, we then also, in that rejoicing, we set out on a pathway to grow in holiness and purity as the people of God, as we're commanded and called to do. This is our vocation as God's people, as we exist in our virtual worlds, in our real worlds, as we're beckoned to fall down and bow and pay homage to the idols of our day that promise us life but deliver nothing but devastation. We are called by Jesus, our Lord, our gracious one, our great cleansing sacrifice to grow in holiness. The author of Hebrews says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Of course, that holiness is secured through the sacrifice of Jesus, but then we're called in response out of the grace of God in our lives to grow in that pathway. I'll close with this. Um, I had a conversation with Jay Sklar, the Old Testament scholar that I've referred to at several points in the series. He's at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and we had an hour chat on the phone back in August when I was working on preparing the series, and he, he told me that when he teaches the book of Leviticus to students, that he has the students seek to keep the Levitical purity regulations for a week without, without um, breaking the law and to keep a daily journal of that experience. I know there were actually about 14 years ago when Daniel Harrell preached on Leviticus here at Park Street, he had a group of maybe 18 of you, I think, that got together and tried to do this for a month. And my guess is you would have had a similar experience to what Sklar observed in his students. He said that... He, they would keep the journal, and when he did this for the first time, as he began to read the journals, he said invariably on day one or two, they, they'd write a comment like, I miss bacon, or something like that. <laughs> you know, they'd be kind of sitting light on it. But as the week progressed, their journal entries would begin to shift and change. And he said he came across an entry like this over and over again. For the past two days, I've been thinking nonstop about how to maintain ritual purity. And all of a sudden, it struck me. If this is the way I am to be with ritual purity, how much more am I to think about moral purity? Oh, how God is holy. And Sklar said as he was reading these journals of his students that he experienced a kind of personal revival or awakening in his own soul as he wrestled with the fact of the holiness of God in a whole new way. I mean, that, that, that fact should both lead us to lean ever more on the provision of God in Jesus Christ and be so thankful for what God has done. God is still holy and sinners still can't come into his presence without God's divine provision. And it should also at the same time cause us to long in our daily lives intentionally with striving and effort. Those are New Testament words, not opposed to grace, to grow in a rejection of the impurities and filth of our culture and world, and in an embrace of the ways of the kingdom and the God who gave us his life, that we might belong to him. Christopher Wright, in his commentary in 1994 on Leviticus, writes this. If Christians were as serious about moral distinctiveness as Israel was about ritual cleanliness, then our salt and light might have greater power in the world. May God give us grace to grow in purity by his amazing love and the gift of his spirit. Don't finish this message and be condemned, but go and sin no more. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your amazing grace in Jesus. And we thank you for the provision of cleanliness and purity for each one of us in Christ. I pray that you just call us to come back if we've wandered away, to lay down at your feet, to open our hands, and to surrender our lives to you all over again. And Lord, how I pray in the midst of a, a world that is so lost that we could, in fact, be salt and light, living in a distinct way as sinners saved by grace, as saints called to be holy for your glory, honor, and praise. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.